maybe you raise a small round from your friends and family, maybe even from pre-seed VC, and with that money hire somebody who is really good, who has equity, who is willing to work overtime. But in the end, if you cannot find somebody as a co-founder, you cannot hire somebody, don't do a startup. That's the very first test that you have to pass. You cannot find it, you are not a founder. That's pretty much it. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so I don't have a co-founder. <laughs> so. Hello, I'm Sami Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. In today's episode, I speak with Ihar Mahaniak from Geek Ventures, which is based in New York. You know, the truth is there are so many amazing investors and founders out there, and I would love to talk to a lot of them because each come with a unique perspective. But I do only one long form podcast per week, and so I have to choose in the end. I usually look for people who have something different to offer. What I liked about Ihar was his focus on immigrants, especially from Eastern Europe. Ihar and his team go and find unique immigrant entrepreneurs and help them relocate and expand in the US. But you don't have to be an immigrant entrepreneur to love this episode. Ihar is a true geek, and I mean that in the best possible definition of the word. He is incredibly intelligent and smart, and he broke down some fantastic concepts for me about the nature of venture capital and how investors think about the growth of a company. I have to say, this was one of my favorite interviews, and I hope you enjoy it too. Ihar, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we got connected through our mutual friend, uh, Farid, in San Francisco. It's such a small world. Everybody knows each other. And, uh, you know, I get introduced to so many VCs. Every day I speak to VCs. Right now we have about 500 VCs on our platform. Um, it's, it's not every day that I speak to people that really stand out, that I'm like, you know, let's, let's go and, and have a, a conversation. Uh, in-depth conversation, you know, on a podcast, but uh, we spoke and, and something clicked and I, I really liked your approach. Um, there, were, there were a few di different things that um, I saw that you were focusing on, uh, people who are coming here, immigrants, you know, there are so many different aspects uh, to your work. So why don't you um, give a quick overview of who you are, um, how your journey in venture capital started, you know, and, and talk a little bit about your current fund and what you're doing, uh, and then we will take it from there. Uh, thank you, Sami. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really uh, uh, excited about this. Uh, so I'm Ihar Makanyok. I'm a managing partner of Geek Ventures. I have a software engineering uh, background. So before I started investing, I started coding from when I was 12 years old. I was very deep in tech. I worked as a software engineer at Google, uh, Facebook. Um, uh, was a VP of engineering at startups, uh, doing AI ML stuff. And I've been investing for about 12 years. Uh, so I started investing as an angel investor. I've uh, invested in more than 100 deals um, uh, before I started Geek Ventures. Uh, I, uh, five companies I invested at Seed became unicorns. I had about 14 uh, exits. And uh, in 2021, I started Geek Ventures, and uh, Geek Ventures uh, is an American fund uh, focused on immigrant founders. Right? So we are specifically for investing in early stage companies in different sectors by uh, immigrant founders, where the uh, the founder quality is extremely important. Uh, when we look at hundreds of uh, startups every month, 
we end up investing in one or two, we try to find really the best. And there are so many aspects that we like um, aspects that we pay attention to. One important is uh, experience and track record. Did this founder show us that they are able to achieve great results, either either at their previous employment or with the previous startup? Did they actually show that they are able to take an idea and execute it? Uh, do other people who worked with this founder feel that that's really greatest um, uh, greatest expert or greatest specialist? Uh, you know and uh, what another uh, completely different uh, uh, aspect that we look at is uh, market fit. So when a founder is uh, uh, starting a company in any given market, you look whether this founder or at least one of the founding team has a really deep experience in that given market. For example, especially if the market is complex, like healthcare, right? We don't we don't want to invest in founders that are starting startups in the complex market without having a initial their own experience and better multi-year experience first we prefer founders that are trying to attack the problem with which they were dealing for many years right so for example they try to automate themselves out of the their previous uh, position out of the job or like or they try to um, automate the relationships with the customers that they were before or where they were customer of some um, company before and now they build uh, a solution for the customers like themselves so things like that are very very helpful we also look at ability of founder to think big so have a really strong vision and uh, be able to articulate something that they will be building that will be exciting that will be something that can grow for 5 10 15 20 years we are looking at the ability of founders to sell, right? So every founder, especially CEO, let's say every CEO has to be a proper uh, salesperson, right? So they should be able to sell their vision to the uh, new employees, to co-founders, to investors, to the customers, right? Uh, as a function of that, we look whether the founders can hire well, right? So if the CEO of the company, not only their track record, but who did they hire? Did they uh, hire somebody with who is stellar, who is like really a player. And uh, and then we look at execution, right? So whenever, so, you know, when the startup has already several months or a few years under their belt, what did they achieve? How fast are they moving? If they pivoted, how, you know, what uh, did they do after the pivot? How fast did they decide to pivot? You know, if they're growing, what's their traction? If they're developing, like, you know, how, how fast they add new features, things like that. Everything is key. Here. Okay, awesome. So, um, I mean, the company, the the fund is called Geek Ventures. So the first uh, thing that comes to mind, and, and you were a software engineer, and the first thing that comes to mind is, would you say that you're super focused on engineering-led products? Is that really like your sweet spot, would you say? Uh, no, actually, the, the, the way I think about geeks is that geek doesn't mean engineer. Geek just means somebody who is obsessed about something, right? So, And we want to invest in founders that are obsessed about their product, about their company, about their market, right? So that's where market focus uh, or market um, fit is more serious there, right? But geek is more like passionate approach, right? So we love to invest in people who are geeky about their own market. They, they cannot imagine working on something completely different. And uh, from engineering perspective, we like to invest in 
in companies that can utilize technology, that can utilize something new, that can only be possible with new tech. But it doesn't mean that uh, tech is the you know the only thing that's important, or engineering is the only thing that's important. It's much more important whether they are solving the real problem, whether they are solving a problem, uh, a pain point their customers have, whether they are thinking about impact their companies uh, have and their product can have. So that's important. And the technology and engineering should be in in um, uh, service to that. And several of CEOs of the companies we invest that have engineering background, but majority don't, and it's fine, right? Of course, they should have somebody with technical on their immediate team and the leadership team. Yeah, 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 yeah 100%. No, I like that um, uh, that definition of geek being about um, being obsessed. I By that definition, I'm definitely a geek, uh, even though I'm not an engineer. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, the way I do these, podcasts i usually treat them as almost like an advisory session for myself with questions that i have in my mind at that moment so these change all the time of course because you know the uh, nature of technology is such that we are we're constantly in flux and things are changing constantly and we are having to deal and as founders we're having to deal with so many things so i i Think of it usually from a founder perspective, but also recently we have started helping other startups with their raise because now we have got 500 VCs on our platform and uh, we are building relationships with the VCs and uh, a lot of startups are starting to coming to us and asking if we can help them with these, uh, you know, warm introductions and all that stuff. And so I'm honestly, I'm spending so much time looking at other people's pitches and I'm listening to so much, so many pitches that I feel like I'm going to, you know, soon be able to actually start my own fund. <laughs> Not that I want to do that, but it's just like, because I'm listening to so many pitches every day now. And, and I'm starting to think from the, the investor perspective, which ironically, it has made me think that maybe for my own company, I may not want to raise VC money, you know, because, because of the, because I'm listening to so many uh, VCs and so many pitches and, uh, and the expectations of the market. And, uh, you know, and as we, we've just started monetizing and I'm like, really starting to think maybe VC is not the only way to go about. So what type of company would you say is VC fundable? Uh, who should go for VC? There, there's this imagination about what VC is. People think like, you know, you're going to raise VC money and, and magically you're going to grow and, and like be so, so successful and so big. And people are coming to me sometimes asking for help to, to connect with VCs that when I talk to them, I feel like maybe they're not ready yet to like, there, there's no thinking beyond uh, or there's not enough thinking beyond how they're going to make money so so they they almost see attracting vc as a goal in itself rather than being a means to an end which is like building a profitable company so maybe first things first you can talk a little bit about who is vc fundable yeah so that's a great question i think in vast majority of businesses um uh, as a whole the very small minority are actually the proper fit for VCs. And unfortunately, a lot of businesses that are not fit for VCs waste their time trying to raise VC money. And some of them end up actually raising VC money and then 
uh, and then not being successful while losing money for themselves personally and for VC. So I think the biggest important thing to understand, there is also like this kind of small uh, part in between. So the companies that are not VC ready, but could still raise some investment, maybe like uh, angels and so on. So vast majority of companies uh, could be successful businesses but will not be uh, right approach for VCs because their growth profile is not right. So what are VCs are looking for? VCs are looking for uh, so-called fund returners. Whenever VC uh, invests in a company, they bet that this company, based thanks to power law, will uh, will be able to return their whole fund. And depending on the fund, it's like they're looking from 10, 20x return on a given company to 100x return on a given company. Right. So, and uh, while at the same time, VCs are okay losing money on this company. The thing is that for a founder, uh, losing a company is a is a much worse outcome, like going to zero in a company, than for a VC. Right. And there is a big difference when you uh, go bankrupt in a company where you were basically taking very small salary for a long time and have really low ownership versus going bankrupt with the company with which you were 100% owner and was paying yourself good salary and dividends every year, right? So there is a big difference there. So here's the thing that if you think and if you want to bet on a high outcome with low probability and you are willing to pay a price which basically suffer to having low salary and uh, for a long time, um, then you and your business model and your idea can support high growth, then you can do VC. And by high growth, I mean, do you see that your company with a uh, with VC investment can actually generate 100 million in revenue? Can you realistically draw this picture? At least 100 million in revenue. I think that if you if your company will at the end generate less than 100 million in revenue, this is not a VC backable company, right? So every company that we invest in. We believe that this company has a path to 100 million revenue, and this team will get it there, and this market can support that. So, 100 million revenue. This is like a simplistic a bit of a benchmark. Another way to benchmark it that this company should be IPOable at some point. So, the company should be able to get to IPO, uh, or at least to like a multi-billion acquisition by another big uh, player. Um, not every company can get there even with a significant uh, um, you know, cash infusion. Imagine if your company, and that's like to any founder, right? Imagine somebody will invest 20 million in your company. You know, you get 20 million in your back then. Do you know what to do with this 20 million in order to start generating 100 million in revenue? If you have no idea, then maybe it's not the right, the venture is not the right approach for you. So. And think about this also dichotomy, right? So that if you never raise venture and you figure out through bootstrapping and through like really uh, careful financial planning that you get to, let's say, million annual revenue, maybe 2 million annual revenue, right? And you get slightly profitable. Maybe you get, you know, half a million a year in uh, profits. Then if you are 100% owner of it, or maybe 50-50 with your co-founder, then you can take this, this, this profit and divide it among the owners as dividends. 
And then if ever, and then you don't need to chase the growth. Maybe you stay flat at 2 million every year, but with, as long as you get profitable, you can be successful. You can be happy. You can be, um, uh, you can live good life, right? Maybe then you can even get a drop in a bad year, but then in the next year, go to 3 million. And then if you, if you're, burn stays low then your profit increases and you benefit from that profit when you're a venture-backed company you uh, the founders are very limited in how much money they can take right so they take money in terms of salary which is typically in us at least like 100k very early at pre-seed uh, level right maybe it gets to 200k a year when you are like at seed series a level right and then um but then the rest of your Future earnings is betting on the stock. And then if your company ever stops growing for some reason, it's not 2x anymore. It's not even 1.5x, it becomes flat. Or it starts uh, going down in revenue. Then suddenly your company is on the path to bankruptcy, even though even though it could still be, could generate, be generating millions a year, can be generating tens of millions. We've seen some unicorns recently basically closing up shop, even though they were generating tens of millions of dollars in every year. And now you, CEO of a company, spent 10 years in this company, got it to generate many, many millions in, in revenue a year on the salary of probably 200K a year, not really, you know, and then not really uh, living uh, your full life and then and then the company goes out of business because it's unprofitable because you try to get back to growth and you couldn't and or it gets sold on a really low multiple right that's another big uh, big uh, problem that when there is a low growth the the company is sold to like on a valuation that's just 1x revenue 2x revenue right and because of liquidation preferences, the founder gets nothing, right? So then, or close to nothing. That's a really tough outcome. And if you spend 10 years building a venture-backed company and you get nothing in the end, that's a really sad result. So I think that everybody should understand whether they are really a betting, they want to bet on this. And I know many successful entrepreneurs that decided not to go on venture uh, path and ended up being very successful even though it was harder, you know, it was harder financially. When you don't have this couple million on your bank account from a venture investor, then it's much harder. You need to figure out a way initially. But then you don't have these expectations that will basically force you, to, you know, to sell your company and go to makers. So, yeah. That's, that's super interesting. I think this is one of the best somebody has ever explained that to me. I loved it. Uh, it was, it's honestly, I'm thinking very deeply about this because for us, we have raised some angel uh, money in the beginning. And, uh, and now I'm at a, uh, at, now that we have started monetizing, literally from last week, we started monetizing and I can see a path to monetization that I think we could um, get away without a venture um, but um, I, yeah so I'm, I'm thinking very deeply about whether I want to take venture money or not I've already built another business without venture and it's um, it's generating money you know and and it's it's a small business but still it pays for my life and it actually supports the second business as well 
Um, and it's like, it's just making me think that company is so pain-free. Like literally I have nothing to do with it. That my team run it without me. They don't need me. I don't even sign off the, you know, the product anymore. I used to sign off the product. Now they, they've learned everything. They It runs without me. It's literally just passive income for me. And, um, and it just makes me think, you know, could I build this one in a similar way, but at a, at a bigger level without venture? Because uh, I used to think like venture was so important. I had to get this much venture. But the more I learn about it, the more I'm thinking, um, you know, do I really need it? Like, the, it, it, is it possible to build um, to a point that, that you, you know, that because here's the thing. Sometimes when you raise venture, um, they, uh, the, the, everybody around you, they expect you to spend money on things like marketing and um you know there are a lot of things because they're like okay you're venture backed like everybody wants you to pay something whereas when you don't have venture back uh, venture money behind you you can say that hey we don't have money we are we are bootstrapped you know we've got but we've got this and we can you know that you can really use your your resources like for example i have my podcast i can there's so many things i can do with that right i can i can go out and do deals with other podcasters and and like you know uh, get get a lot of uh, resources whereas but when you're venture pack back the same those same podcasts that you go to they expect you to pay to be a uh, you know to be uh, to, to sponsor them right do you see what i mean like there's there are so many things you can do when you are not venture backed you could really like be so lean and and grow in a very organic and lean way but on, but unfortunately um uh, it it will be like you say harder a, a little bit slower but but then if you do ca uh, do the cash injection of venture, then you really have to fuel that fire to grow 10x and and um, you know it's so much faster. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. What would you do? So first of all, I think that these are valid points, but they're also not only about whether you're venture backed or not, but whether it's public. So I actually know startups that raised four, five, ten million dollars, and nobody knows about it because. They don't have to necessarily, you know, go on TechCrunch and talk about this, right? Startups can be quiet about this. They, uh, it's, it's nobody, it's not everybody's business how much money you raised and from whom. Startups want to publicize it because, in many ways, it actually helps them, right? So, the moment you tell uh, publicly that you raised, uh, you know, X million of dollars, it makes it easier to hire. It makes it easier to uh, stand out as a reputable company to your potential customers and so on. But I understand that sometimes your you know, partners and vendors would expect more money from you. So think about that publicity. But also, I think there is a completely different question besides who should and who shouldn't get venture, who is right and who is not right. In, and the completely different question, what you can achieve. And it's much harder. It's not completely impossible. There are definitely examples. But it's much harder to get to 100 million years in uh, revenue if you never got venture back if you never got infusion of cash. So it's like being completely bootstrapped. And by bootstrapped, I mean not getting a million dollars from your dad, but like properly bootstrapped. To be fair, some people get a million of their own money, of their family money, and they call it bootstrapped to the business. That's not bootstrapped. Properly bootstrapped is when you uh, just getting almost no salary and you figure out how to pay for your costs from your revenues. That's the bootstrap. But here's the thing, if you're building a bootstrap business or you only get like, you know, small 
personal cash injection like 100k then going to getting to 100 million is it's almost impossible it's really harder because you don't have enough money to build a bigger uh, technology system it's you don't have enough money to build mode you don't have enough money to build proper marketing brand and so on and uh, and it's fine a lot of uh, a lot of people would be happier and more successful in their life without building 100 million a year business but if you think that your business could or should be 100 million and a lot of ambitious people think that they want to build a hundred million or a billion dollar a year business. Those people should take venture money because, you know, you have one life and if you want to have, you know, a shot on achieving this hundred million a year revenue within 10, 15 years, uh, you should probably take venture money because otherwise it might take 30, 40, 50 years or might never happen because it'll be way, way slower to get to that point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, in my case, I definitely feel that uh, our company has the potential to reach that level. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, we've got a very unique business model, and I, I definitely think that we can do that. But I'm, I'm just thinking a lot more about, you know, the valuations, the the fact that um, the market has changed so much, and and uh, the market for the past two years has been more of a buyer market rather than an investor market if you know what i mean like people it feels like people are not really investing they're just expecting to buy in that um they're going with a viewpoint of um really like downgrading um or, or i i think i think it's a correction right because it went really crazy in 2021 and it's and then it's it's gone the opposite side like it's swing swung to the to the very opposite side so um so it's i think it's sort of now getting some kind of balance do you think that in 2024 uh, the valuations are going to be slightly improved or are they still going to stay as low as uh, it was that was one of the reasons why i thought i'm not going to take venture money if people are going to you know not uh if, if valuations are going to be so low there are so many sectors and aspects to that valuations question. first of all there's definitely a small sector of this kind of opportunistic cheap uh, buys where the companies are being recapitalized the companies are going doing down rounds and then i've heard of a successful company with uh, you know 10 million annual revenue raising at 15 million uh, pre-valuation because you know they have they had some issues and they have to do it and of course anybody who invests on that is really you know really happy because it's a great opportunity financially but this is a small uh, sector and then within the traditional venture there is early stage and uh, later stage late stage valuations collapsed really and you know what we saw in 2021 when a company with like you know a million arr could have raised around 300 million valuation i've seen this you know uh this is not happening anymore so valuations at series c d e significantly went down nobody wants to pay like 100 tax uh, uh, in revenues but the valuations at precedence are even though they're like uh, smaller on average uh, they're not smaller than the minimum, right? So yes, there are fewer outrageous uh, rounds, right? So what was in 2021, a pre-seed company with a, uh, well-connected founders and the deck, no product, no customers, nothing, could have raised a 25, 30 million uh, valuation. Now, same kind of founders probably will be 10, maybe 7 million valuation if you only have a deck, or these founders have actually to work their ass off 
for a product or customers, and then they can raise it like you know 10, 15. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the the what I see is that the valuations for companies that are like you know at seed level that generate some initial revenue are very similar to what we seen before the craziness. So 2019 and 2023 valuations that precede and seed are pretty much the same. So this is, uh, and most people in the startup ecosystem don't really feel it because it's really difficult to feel what happened five years ago, right? Or four years ago. It's much more easy to feel what happened two years ago, right? And when you, you know your friends who have raised the seed round without any revenue at 20 million valuation, right? Then you want to do the same. And it's pretty much impossible right now. And while I still get decks which say that, you know, here's our goal, no revenue, you're raising a seed round four at 20. No, you're not raising a seed round four at 20. You should raise one at five, you know, a pre-seed because you don't have something ready for a proper seed yet. But so, and what I think will happen in 2024 is that uh, there will be increase in valuations, uh, probably, but will be again more on the later stage. I think on the precedent seed, we'll see discipline from the investor side, continuing discipline uh, that will um, continue that, yes, you can, we have a million in revenue, you can probably get 15 million valuation. Yeah, maybe even 20, some of that, right? But if you don't have million in revenue, Maybe you should stay within like this 10, 12 uh, million valuation, right? So, and these are just like some numbers. Uh, by the way, these are all in dollars, US uh, market uh, numbers, like, you know, coastal uh, companies, New York and Silicon Valley. So, so um, and this I think will stay the same uh, next year. And what is uh, important is that, don't forget that even that is still uh, investors paying, paying premium for risk, right? For example, a very typical failure mode. A company generating a million in revenue was 2x year over year, right? Now they're raising, let's say, 15 million uh, valuation. And the founder is not very happy because their friend in 2021 raised that 100 million valuation or like something like that with a million in revenue, right? But now they're raising at 15, an investor pays at 15 million valuation. Then a couple of years pass. Then the company go to 3 million and their growth slowed. They grow slow. They are not able to grow 2x anymore. They are growing 20%. You know what the company will be worth if it's three million in revenue, but it's growing only 20%. So it'll probably be worth like eight million dollars, maybe ten, because the multiples will go down significantly with the growth. And now suddenly the investor is losing money. The founder is maybe is losing money. Everybody's losing money, even though they invested at this kind of valuation that's much lower now than before. Right, so it's still a very risky thing. In order for this, from this 15 million to go up, a company needs to continue the growth rate, right? So this is where, what is important, the venture growth rate is very least 2X year over year. If you're ever below 2X year over year, it's not really a proper venture backable company. In the, before you're a million in revenue, you should be at 3X year over year, right? And you should continue, right? So, and only after you're like, you know, 20, 30 million, you can go below 2X and still be venture back. I love it. This is so, you, you explain everything so clearly. So basically it's all about the growth. So you have yes. to be, you have to be growing at uh, ideally doubling every year, basically. 
pretty much. At I, least. It's not even the hour ideally. Minimum Dublin every year. Maybe. Don't think of it. It's not minimum uh, Dublin every year. Ideally, 3x year every year. If you ever grow 4x year every year, you are amazing, right? You are like top of the 1% of the company. So, yeah. so but, but wait a second. So, so a doubling every year, that's like exponential. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is exponential. So, so surely that can't, unless you are Apple, that can't go on indefinitely. Nobody speaks about indefinitely, right? And the VC market. Until right? you so get what? to a hundred million revenue minimum. Kind yeah. of, right? So look, yeah, that. So uh, there is this phrase: triple, triple, double, 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 right? So the company two years does three x, and then three years does two x, right? So and let's say they start with hundred k error, then they do three hundred k, then they do nine hundred k. This is a two uh, two years they triple, and then they three years double. They go from nine hundred, let's say million, from million to two, that's one year. From two to four, that's two years, and from four to eight, uh, third year. At that time, they're already raising Series B. Just to be very clear, right? So they raise the company that grows like this uh, raises seed when they are like at three hundred k, five hundred k ARR. They raise Series A when they're at two million ARR, and they raise Series B when they're close to like six, seven, eight million ARR. Series B, it will probably be at like 100 million valuation, maybe 150 million valuation, mm. right? And now they are in the um, completely different space of working with, C with growth investors, which is, you know, different kind of investor than I am, right? So I'm not investing in companies that are going at close to 10 million era. And then Yes, you should. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are those founders, but those founders have different um, comparables. And at that point, 2x becomes more like ideal, right? Above 10, 10, uh, 10 million, but a little below 10, uh, 2x is still acceptable. And then, like, okay, then we go from, let's say, 8 to, let's say, 15, a little less than 2x. Then from 15, we go to like 28. That's another year, right? And from 28, we go to, let's say 50, you know, and then from 50, we go to 80, right? So it's like another, and in general, this journey is like how many years? We did one, two, three, four, five, six. We got about 10 years of journey, right? And the year 11, we got, we had, we hit 100 million. It's a really, really solid uh, journey. And typically then year 11, year 12 on that journey would be IPO or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I get it. So now that now that you talk about these types of numbers, it does make sense that it's pretty hard to do that without venture. Like, you know, if that's the expectation of the type of growth that, that yeah. the three X's, yeah, it's very hard to do that without venture. But at the same point, uh, if you didn't do, uh, didn't take any venture money, nobody is giving you expectations. Nobody, is, you don't need to justify your, you know, financial projections. The only expectations you have now, if you didn't take any venture, that you have to pay salaries, right? So that you have to have enough money through the revenues to pay for your costs. Mm -hmm. And if you are actually, another thing that is important, that if you go above a million in ARR, you're pretty much eligible for debt. Before million is really hard, right? But after million in, uh, in revenue, you can start taking money from banks, paying them, you know, 10, 15% annual um, uh, yield, but still keep all the ownership of your company and all yeah, the Yeah, that's how I built my other business. I built it on debt. 
and then paid it off and and yeah it, it's uh, it's another way of doing it and then you own the full company yeah but uh, for for that you know venture investors can invest much earlier than debt investors for sure this was super interesting okay so let's talk a little bit about moat um, so ba- basically every day uh, every morning i wake up from the morning, from the moment I sit at my desk until I go to bed, I have conversations on Zoom. I have on average about 14 to 15 Zoom conversations a day. Roughly half of them are with VCs and the other half are with uh, startup founders. So that's basically what I do, right? And then some of it is with service partners. Um, So I hear both sides quite a lot. And everything I hear is so similar whether whether it's from VCs or from uh, from founders, I hear a lot of similar kind of things. So that whether they are a SaaS business, everything starts to kind of sound very similar. Uh, for for VCs is even more the case. So I I hear a lot of VCs. Yeah, we are we have uh, we invest this much. We have got this much fund. We are sector sector agnostic, or or we invest in these five areas those five areas are almost 80% the same and, and they all invest in the same type of uh, founders. And then a lot of 80% of the founders also are about the same. So in this, in this uh, day and age, how, how does one go about building a moat? What is a moat? Explain that a little bit. Let's first talk about from a startup perspective, what's a moat in this day and age where everybody has access to a similar kind of technology pretty much. Yes, uh, great. So this is, I think, Moat is very important for founders to think about. And a lot of founders don't think about Moat at all. Uh, a lot of founders think about, you know, what's the problem, the market, here's our solution. Uh, let's go, here's the competitors. The way I think about Moat, and this is very interesting, I remember the, uh, the feedback I was given yesterday at a panel uh, where we were judging um, startups from uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities for HBCU fund. And all of them had great uh, great uh, ideas and started, but nobody thought about more. And the way I explain what I want every founder to think about, be ambitious, but humble. And think about this. What if next year there'll be a person who is three times smarter than you, who has access to more resources, will see your idea, or think about this idea independently, just come up with this idea independently, or see this problem, and decide to build exactly the same solution, or mostly similar, but with more money, with with, uh, uh, better resources, maybe smarter than you. What will you have by that time that will prevent them to just eat you for lunch? That's what's called mold, right? and there are good examples of modes. There are different types of modes. I think, for example, uh, Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, uh, Instagram, uh, uh, they have this mode based on the social network. LinkedIn has the same mode, uh, you know, where you cannot just build a LinkedIn or Facebook clone because everybody already using LinkedIn and Facebook. Even if you are smart, if you have resources to build, you you cannot take overtake this network uh, mode. Then there is a technological mode. That's what OpenAI has, right? You can try to build a competitor to OpenAI, but you need uh, many years and enormous amount of resources to just replicate what OpenAI did, right? Then there is a a kind of demand uh, 
uh, demand uh, mode, like for example, what Airbnb has right now, that if you build an Airbnb competitor, it will be very difficult for you to get customers on your platform because every customer likes to have, you know, to use Airbnb. And there's like a typical marketplace mode is about uh, having a both demand and supply there. And there are other examples, but basically uh, my approach here is to not to tell you what your mode should be. My approach is to tell you that this is what I'm looking for in the mode is that the competitor who will try to copy your thing will not be able to just steal your users, especially if they do the same, same thing but free or the same thing but cheaper. <laughs> what do you have that prevents users to go? There is a lock-in, for example, you know, how difficult it is to take people away from iPhone because they have all their iPhone apps over there, you know, this like ecosystem, so on. So every startup at preceded seed level should think really hard about what mode they have. Because if they don't have a mode, even if they have revenue, even if it's a growing revenue, it can change any time because a competitor will come up. And it could be new competitor, it could be existing big company just opening up this uh, direction in their um, you know, R&D roadmap and so on. Yeah, definitely. One of the one of the things I find very difficult when startups come to us with, with pitch decks, um, I see uh, especially areas where they say, for example, that we will we are creating a specific um, AI based product that, uh, let's say, for example, you know, that uh, this will take your picture and it will do this with with that picture. You know, that, those are the type of things that really scare me because I'm like, I can just see Adobe waking up this tomorrow morning and creating that, you know, like, for example, there was this uh uh, product uh, there were a few different products like there's otter there's like aboma these things that uh, you would uh, connect your zoom to and then it would take notes for your uh, yeah. from your your meetings then um, i woke up one morning and zoom had it and it was like zoom has has built that in and i was like talking to my team i was like i wonder what happens to those companies now are people are still going to use those if it's built into zoom already and you can just basically go in and, and enable that. So, so a lot of technology-based products, these types of automation products, I don't know how they are going to uh, find a moat uh, and survive. So what's the, um, you know, what are some of the areas that you can naturally have a moat, would you say? So as I said, network effects is a big mode, but again, it's not in, it's not forever, right? So Facebook had the mode for, for a long time and then TikTok came up and they, they took a lot of users away, right? So, and uh, OpenAI had the technological mode and Google built some sort of competitor, right? So maybe, you know, it's, uh, you know, and uh, no mode is impenetrable, but your, your solution should be sticky enough that people wouldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't just uh, go away at the first sight, right? So I think Jasper was a good example of company without really mode. Jasper was a copy copywriting uh, startup, I think a billion dollar unicorn startup even that was built on top of um, uh, GPT uh, before ChatGPT was launched. And uh, uh, it ended up not having enough uh, technological mode and not having enough lock-in and uh, people just stopped using it on the moment ChatGPT arrived. But then if you are, for example, on Google Docs, you cannot really walk away because you have all your docs inside. Even if, even if you know, somebody else builds a better software in terms of how it looks, 
because you have a login of your previous data. Data login is really huge. Like nobody, Google Analytics was a best example of where Moat was great, but company kind of killed uh, it with bad decisions. Google Analytics had every every website that was in Google Analytics for a long time had the data there. And there are competitors out there, but nobody wanted to switch to a competitor. And then Google decided that Google Analytics 4 will not use the data from previous Google Analytics. So it basically deleted the data. And people started switching away because Google just basically removed the mode. So this is another mode. And uh, when you talk to our companies, we always think is like, okay, what to our portfolio companies, what is your mode in the future? Not everybody has a mode at the time we invest, but they should have some thought process about how they will develop more. There is also, of course, a technological mode in terms of patents, you know, like that, that's more for deep tech companies that build some, you know, materials, some hardware, something like that. There is also could be a technological, uh, technological mode um, around uh, UI, right? So for example, one of our portfolio companies, ShapesXR, which is a software company for uh, collaboration VR, their big mode is technological because it's such a difficult process to build a it took many years to build a proper technological ui for this it's really difficult to repeat it and the yeah of course uh, a lot of uh, vr companies hardware companies have this like magic leap so on so uh, yeah think about this a lot and again if you are not you don't want to be venture backable you don't need to have a mode because the moment you are a boutique you don't have a moat. And uh, this is another question. Venture funds. Venture funds by default or by definition are boutique, right? Similar like marketing agencies, uh, recruiting companies, right? So outsourcing companies. All of them solve, you know, problems in a kind of similar way to their competitors. And they take some small amount of market, but they're limited in their growth. They cannot grow exponentially. Uh, yeah, 100%. Sometimes I get founders that come to me, especially non-technical founders that uh, have a great idea, have a great understanding of that market, but maybe they're not necessarily coders. Um, and then sometimes in order to solve that solution, they will go and find um, maybe some kind of an agency to build something for them. And, uh, and, and then they're trying to raise money through that. And I... Uh, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that is not venture backable, or it, it can be a problem if you are getting an agency to build something for you in, a, uh, in an idea. Yeah, it it can be a problem. It's um, uh, it's it's problem in most cases, and here's the here's why, right? So that as a founder, I mentioned before that you need to be able to sell your idea, right? So, and it's. It's important that you are able to find co-founders that are able to work for free or close for, to for free, right? And you need to hustle to talk to, I don't know, hundreds of people maybe before you find one person that is both good enough and also willing to work for free or almost for free, right? In order to bootstrap yourself to the uh, to the funding. Of course, you might take uh, some money from your friends or from your family, a couple hundred K, and then it's a big question how to best spend this money. You could spend them on a small below market salary for your co-founder that has equity. Or you can spend on outsourcing agency, which actually takes a significant additional margin on top. And they don't ever take equity. They take, and then uh, they take money. And then you are just inefficient in your spend on one hand. And on the other hand, it's more important that you don't have 
somebody who is bought in to this as much as you do. That one big problem with any times you hire an agency for long term, like like software agency and so on, you need to oversee them, right? So and the the moment you stop being super super attentive uh, about how they're doing, you know, giving them proper technical specification, they will not do it. So the no agency has uh the, it's not in their dna to basically be innovative right to basically build a completely new product in the world that stands out and that's bold right you as a ceo and maybe your co-founder cto or cpo can be bold and can try to build something unusual different new and uh, you should expect that the agency will build something similar to what they built before, something similar to what they've seen, something safe, something that will hopefully have a few bugs, very few bugs or no bugs, yes. But at the same time, it will be less bold, it will be more bland. So, and then they, at any moment, they can go away and then suddenly you will have a code, but you don't have anybody who is vested personally to build. And the moment you run out of money, which is very possible, who will uh, stop working first? Agency will stop working first. Your co-founder might still work a few months without money, not the agency. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's that's very true. So, um, but also I think it's it's a matter of whether your product is something that is very tech dependent, or whether it's something that is like you know, like in our case, our moat is our marketing, is our ability to market. And uh, and I think the product itself, the the platform itself is not necessarily groundbreaking. Um, it's it's the community building, uh, you know, uh, element that that we are very good at. Um, so so I think I guess it also depends on what the product is, right? Like if the product is if you are selling the technology, that's different to if you're really selling something uh, something else. Like you if you're focus is like let's say community or something else so the thing in there is that it's actually much better if you have at least one cto or maybe a couple senior engineers in-house and then outsource the rest to an agency then if non-technical ceo just hires an agency because here the thing that even if your product is not very groundbreaking tech you as ceo want to have somebody who's responsible for this not breaking but also has a level of ownership right, that wants to wake up at night if something breaks. And, you know, CEO will wake up at night if something breaks. But will the agency wake up at night if something breaks? No, probably probably not, right? And then if you CEO cannot fix your website when it went down, then you will have to wait until there are working hours of your agency, things like that, right? If you have a right-hand, a co-founder who can do that, then yes. It's still, even though your technology is not groundbreaking, the product has to work. Product has to work well. You have to have somebody on your team who has this, like, in their bones that they want this product to work well. Yeah, but what do you do if you can't find a co-founder? If you just don't have a co-founder, you 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 can't wait around forever until you find a co-founder. You can hire somebody. So you another thing is like, as I said, maybe you raise a small round from your friends and family, maybe even from pre-seed VC, and with that money hire somebody who is really good has equity with who who is willing to work overtime because that's kind of the thing in a startup but in the end if you cannot find somebody as a co-founder you cannot hire somebody don't do a startup 
that's the very first test that you have to pass. Every successful founder found somebody to do technology, somebody to do marketing and everything else for them. You cannot find it, you are not a founder. That's pretty much it. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, so um, I don't have a co-founder. <laughs> so, but so you I, have somebody working on your technology, right? Yeah, we have, we have amazing yourself. people. Yes, we have, we have built up and they have equity in the company. And they have equity and they have ownership, right? That's important. Yeah. Feeling of ownership, I mean, right? They yeah. they would wake up if, if, you know, if something goes down. That's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my team are really like that. Um, okay, so last question. Let's talk a little bit about the, your focus about uh, on immigrants. So I'm an immigrant. Uh, I know how hard it is when you come from another country. You know, you're you're starting out. So um, are you focusing on immigrants, like first generation immigrants that are coming in now here? Is that the type of thing that you're generally focusing on? Are they do they have to be first generation? Is that um... yes, yes. So we uh, we focus on uh, first generation. We focus on people who actually moved. We uh, we we cast our net wide, and we consider different kinds of immigrants, even like those that moved when they were three years old. But what I see the 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 most uh, successful kind of immigrant that we see is somebody who moved in their twenties or thirties, right? So somebody who has grown in one culture and then moved. To completely another culture, and that move, they in that move they uprooted themselves. They uh, moved a lot of uh, things. They lost probably connection to some of their friends. They built new friends. They had to adapt to new culture. They had to go through immigration paperwork hell, which is really really difficult uh, process. They had to decide to do this for for some good reason, and now in their new place they have to be successful because like that's the main thing for them now, right? So and. It's, it makes people really harder and stronger. And I feel that's really a lot. Oh, we also look at immigrants from a, who came further uh, younger and like long, longer ago. And those have their own benefits as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, for this conversation, Ihar. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. And uh, I hope that other people who listen to it also enjoy it as much. I'm sure they will. And uh, I hope to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you, Sami. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ihar Mahaniak. Be sure to follow him on LinkedIn and check out Geek Ventures. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the Somi Aryan channel on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcast. It will mean the world to me if you leave a review or share the podcast with others who might enjoy it too.